the technologies and the methodologies of modular that we're deploying today are available today. There is very little in the way of inventions required to make this thing functional. Like, yes, we're developing some cool IP with some cool structural cages and connections and facade details and what have you, but this is like fine grained stuff I'm describing. The base logic of modular exists today and it functions. What doesn't function is the ecosystem, right? The relationship between the fabricator, the contractor, the municipal authority, the lender, the insurance company. There's a lot of complexity there. Like the contracts we use from the AIA have not been augmented to work for modular, blah, 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 blah. That's actually good news. The, the methodology functions, the logistics and the infrastructure need some work. That's fixable. That comes through conversations and policy and communication and, and sort of growing an industry. But the good news is we don't have to invent cold fusion for this future to be available to us today. So when you ask me what the future is, the future is now. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Architecture is pretty complex, and despite the fact that we spend most of our days inside buildings, I would hazard a guess that not many people know how great architecture actually comes into being. After a number of years in university programs, internships are followed by years of practice. And it's said that architecture is one of those professions where it takes a long time to begin to really flourish. The great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright designed the Guggenheim in New York late in his career, and it opened only six months before Wright died at the age of 92. With buildings all around us, some of which we pass every day, not paying them any attention, where do we go to find out what it really takes to make great buildings and why we should be particularly interested in the first place? Well, you could go to books or movies or even podcasts like this one, or you might tune into a television show whose purpose it is to bring some of the great buildings of the world into our living room. By some way of unscripted serendipity, my guest on today's show did exactly that. As a student in the Graduate School of Architecture at Harvard University, Danny Forrester was exhausted and looking to, as he explains, run away from architecture. In a strange twist of fate, he lands a job as the host of one of Discovery Channel's most successful shows. Build It Bigger ran for nine seasons and became the highest rated show on the Science Channel and won the 2010 Directors Guild of America Award. The show took Forrester and a camera crew around the world to investigate pioneering architecture and engineering projects and put them in cultural, historical, and environmental context. Through his persistent and passionate advocacy, Danny gets people to notice, understand, and value the built environment. Besides offering a great education for an aspiring architect, Build It Bigger taught Danny how to talk about architecture so an audience wouldn't just understand how and why a building was designed the way it was, but that they would actually care. Danny Forrester ran away from architecture to find that he could bring architecture home to all of us. Today, he wants us to care as much as he does about buildings and the effect that they're having on our planet. Danny has put a spotlight on modular building and has partnered with MyTech, a construction company owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, on something called the Modular Activation Platform, a system designed to clear away some of the obstacles to widespread modular construction. Danny Forrester is a multi-hyphenate creative spirit who believes that any modest progressive change to the building industry towards modular construction will be a huge paradigm shift for our planet. 
Back in the early 2000s, I had uh, two young sons and we came across this amazing TV show, Extreme Machines or Extreme Engineering or something. And then it became, you know, Build It Bigger. And we used to watch this like religiously because the guy who was the host of the show, who did these amazing excursions literally to like 50 different countries in the world, climbed to the top of huge buildings, uh, aerials. He spent time like two miles under the, the earth, you know, in some mine. And he was always putting himself in these crazy positions that most people on earth would never think would be a good thing to do. But we sort of fell in love with this character, you know, and he was the guy who just brought us really exciting things about the world of architecture and design and build it bigger. I think became one of the most successful shows on Discovery Channel. And the host, Danny Forrester, was this architecture student plucked out of his graduate year uh, or graduate school at Harvard in architecture and went on to be the executive producer of this show that was extremely successful and taught me and my sons, even though I'm an architect, a lot about engineering and amazing building. And so what I've loved about the opportunity to talk with Danny Forrester today is to move from build it bigger to the idea of building it better. Um, and we're going to get to what I mean by that later. But what I thought I would do is say, you know, with a lot of gratitude and excitement to welcome Danny Forrester to the Next Level Experience Design podcast and say, hey, Danny, this has been uh, a long time in the making. We've become friends over the past few years after me watching that show. And we've worked together on a few things as well. So I am delighted to have you on the show. Thank you, David. I'm very happy to be here. And you know what? You are You are fairly prescient in the sense that uh, I had pitched a number of years into the show to change the name from Build It Bigger to Build It Better. Literally, this is a conversation. Oh, oh did you? Yeah, because we were we were constrained by scale because the the sort of well, whatever the the need. Sorry, there's a siren in the background, so I can push through or yes, keep going. Yes, so what people should know, right, is that you know when you talk to anybody in any office in New York City, you've got to know that at least five or six times in the middle of a very important part of the interview, that's what you're going to hear in the background. Siren. So, well, all right, if we if we accept this as an existing condition, I'll proceed. But yeah, basically, the the show was called Build It Bigger, which, for the record, was not the name I'd originally wanted, but nonetheless, I. I when you get your TV show by answering an ad on Craigslist, you don't have a ton of pull with the execs in year one. But the problem was it was all about the biggest this, the tallest that, the deepest this. You know, like the problem is there's only so many biggest on planet Earth. And at a certain point, you actually just want to do what design is all about is explore solutions. And the solutions are not necessarily uh, based on the scale of the solution. Oftentimes, right. very small solutions are great solutions. And oftentimes, you know, you want to do a very tall building, but maybe the most interesting building is one that has a curved geometry to it. And that's very compelling. Or there's a certain museum with a, with a very interesting strategic way of dealing with the sunlight. It's not the biggest museum. And then you find yourself in this ridiculous situation of having to pitch these things saying, oh, don't worry. It's the second biggest steel tower built on a Tuesday west of the Mason-Dixon and coming up with these ridiculous ways to qualify it. So it could be a superlative, um, which was a bummer in the end of the day, because as we all know, I mean, you know, Bigger is not better. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah. So the show was meant to be Build It Better, but it still was called Build It Bigger for like 10 years. We love that show. It was terrific. But, you know, the, the story really starts before that. And I think um, I don't often actually ask people to give the sort of historical perspective of I was born in Brooklyn or I was born in so-and-so and, -so, and I, I ended up being there. But you happen to have a really particularly interesting story, I think. So how do you get literally to to doing that? Was that something you always wanted to do? Or was it one of these remarkable moments of serendipity that happened to just come on the radar and you just said yes, like following, you know, the omens and the alchemist? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely have not had a particularly clear trajectory, or at least not one that um, was deliberate from my point of view. I think, yeah, certainly coming from a, a father who was a neurologist and a mother who was an AIDS and hemophilia clinician, the notion of not being a doctor was problematic. And because I was a fast talker and a good debater in high school, the fact of not being a lawyer was a problem as well. I mean, those were the, <laughs> you know, for a son of a Jewish immigrant, there aren't that many pathways that are really conceptually made available to you. So I, you know, frankly, I studied art history in college and initially even in high school, not because I even liked art, to be frank. It was just because I wasn't a great reader. And art history was the only time when I was in a class that I could pay attention to the context that was being described to me. So I understood cities by understanding like the Medici family and all of their patronage of Florence. I understood politics. Like I was like, oh, I get it. This banking family is building museums because they're trying to flex in the face of the Pope. Oh, I start to understand sociopolitical history. I understand urban design. You know, I started to get it. And so art history wasn't like so much a, a, an exploration of a passion as just, you know, the gateway that made sense. You know, people find just different pathways to clarity. And that was one for me. But, you know, graduating college with a degree in art history, you can imagine just the, the job prospects just, you know, <laughs> they weren't they weren't big or they weren't it's not even they weren't big i didn't even know what they were it's like like what do you even right. do like i just didn't even know what to do and so when i graduated college i i worked in real estate by day and was doing stand-up comedy by night the real estate thing is i had a cousin who did real estate so he's like do this this will help you pay your rent and the comedy thing was just some party was like well maybe i just made all the wrong choices maybe let me try this out and it's not that i wasn't good i was actually pretty good but the problem was i had very little courage so I had five minutes of material that kind of did well. And what I would do is I'd go up every single night and deliver those same five minutes over and over again. And, uh, you know, anyone who's a real performance artist or any comic knows that you got to get up there and you got to bomb constantly and test right. the material and grow the material and write new material and constantly be growing. Right. And um, so the didn't the comedy while I enjoyed being up there and I enjoyed thinking on my feet, I didn't have the creative courage or really the honesty to tell my own story at that point. I was telling someone else's story, just that of a nervous Jewish kid, frankly. And so I did real estate for a while. And I, this is the year 2000 when they were giving away internet companies left and right. And so that's what I did. I started an internet company because it was the dot-com days and it was pretty easy to raise money. And so I had gotten an apartment through a broker who totally screwed me over with my best friend. And I was like, this seems like a problem we could fix. We should start an internet company to help young people find apartments in New York City, which this was kind of before the major websites had, had sort of taken over brokerage companies. So we did an internet company and we sold the company. And it was probably, if I look back, more fraudulent than real. But nonetheless, it was a thing. And, uh, and I found myself still trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I was 23 or 24 years old. And, you know, architecture school, and I guess the truth is really, it's like when in doubt, go to grad school and you don't know what to do with your life. And so it's a pretty privileged point of view to have. But it was true. I sort of felt like, I, I felt rudderless and confused. I didn't have a strong point of view on what I wanted to do with my existence. I knew I liked art history. Apparently, I was kind of good at some of this real estate silliness. And I had this very, very uh, incorrect assumption that architecture was some like beautiful pairing of business and art. Um, none of that is true for the listeners who are thinking about being an architect. So I applied to a bunch of grad schools and uh, I got into a lot of them. I think all of them, frankly, including a lot of the fancy ones like like Harvard and Yale and Columbia. And, you know, I think just to kind of tell on myself, I think if you are rudderless and a little bit insecure, if you don't know where to go, well, then you'll just pick the fanciest place because that'll give you some direction. Right. And so to, to probably satisfy those immigrant parents, 
I went to Harvard and ironically, I visited Harvard and visited Yale. Yale was like, this is really sensitive. We'll help you become the designer you want to be. They'll find your voice. And Harvard was like, we do not care what your voice is. We will beat that voice out of you and give you the right voice. And I was like, oh, that's good. Uh, that seems masochistic. I'll pick that one. And so I picked the place that I think was probably wrong for my kind of emotional point of view, but right for my, you know, need for cultural acceptance. And I went to Harvard. And, you know, going to architecture school without a background is a little bit of a high wire act because uh, what they also don't tell you is that everyone else, even though it's a three and a half year degree where you, you think you can start from zero, no one is starting from zero. Everyone else is coming with their kind of guns fully loaded. They've done this for four years in college. They know how to draw, use the computer, do modeling. All I knew how to do was talk. And that doesn't get you all that far in architecture, at least not initially anyway. And so I had a real rough road. I was struggling like crazy, you know, and I'm super competitive. So I'm pulling nonstop all nighters, just trying to catch up to learn how to draw, to build a model, figure out what architecture is all about. Also, I went to grad school, not never having met an architect. Like how's about that for like a real thoughtful uh, way to kind of craft your life. Quarter million dollar investment apropos of what? Like fear and confusion. And lo and behold, I really struggled. And, uh, and I guess this kind of leads up to, I think where your question was, which is like, how do you end up on a TV show, which is, you know, I think confusion and depression. Like I'm, I'm three years into a three and a half year master's. I am so exhausted. I'm so brutalized from this curriculum. They've hammered every bit of curiosity I had out of me. I'm just trying to survive. And I'm sitting there trying to do my thesis where you've got to actually come up with your own thing now, right? There's no professor. It's you. What do you want to tell? What is your point of view? Where you, what is your voice? And I got nothing, zero. And I'm just staring at the blank screen. And my girlfriend at the time, was trying to get out of Boston, frankly, and get to New York and was looking on Craigslist for, for production jobs, PA jobs and TV and found an ad, which we didn't know at the time, it was actually the Discovery Channel looking for hosts. And it said, uh, like, do you like architecture? Um, you know, can you, can you talk about it? Send us a tape. And, you know, without getting into all the boring details, literally like made a video in the living room with a Canon Elf 1.4 megapixel camera and sent off, took about a week to figure out how to get that stuff off the camera onto a DVD. Once we cracked that code, <laughs> got the DVD sent off. And a few weeks later, I got a ridiculous phone call. And yeah, and that's how it happened. And I, but I do have to say, like, you know, sometimes running away from stuff is actually a good indicator of where you want to be. And, and the reality was I was running away from what felt like the super myopic, super esoteric, kind of elitist and exclusive world that I was being trained in at architecture school. But I actually did like architecture. Not because mm. it was highfalutin or cultural, it's because it was public, because it was didactic, because it was clear. Like I'm the kid in high school who learned in art history class because I the buildings made sense to me because they actually told a story that was not masked. It wasn't hidden. It was actually much clearer than like a dense paragraph was. And I go to Harvard and I'm learning all this stuff. And I can't even talk to my dad about like a renovation of a bathroom because I'm learning about, you know, Nietzsche and Derrida. And and it just kind of bummed me out that 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 architecture I thought was public and I was learning about a very kind of kind of elitist version of it. And lo and behold, there's a TV show that's trying to make this like really elitist thing, super public, super accessible, yeah. super democratized. And so that was kind of the blessing. I feel like I think I was running away from a thing and the TV show was kind of what I was running towards. Uh, and look, I'll be honest, you know, cut to seven, eight, nine years later making this thing. It felt kind of reductive and a little, and a little bit like too dumbed down. And then the practice of architecture becomes that sort of pendulum swinging balance for me where I kind of oscillate between both worlds. But yeah, at its core, I think 
the way I, I guess the very lengthy way of answering your question is I, I stumbled into television, I think running away from architecture a little bit. And in doing a lot of TV about architecture, I think I actually found my, my voice in architecture ultimately, because it helped situate my point of view. You know, there's so many similarities here. And I think this is why, um, I think, when did we actually start to work together? Probably back in 2017, I think, when I yeah. was at Marriott and you you began to work on some, do some things for us there. And, and um, we were fast friends, I think. And I think part of that was due to the fact that there are so many similarities in the trajectory, the story, mm -hmm. right? I, mm -hmm. I grew up, you know, son of a dentist, a mother was a nurse, older brother was a biochemist, and I was the last great hope for the dentist in the family. <laughs> but I couldn't bear the thought that I would be looking inside people's mouths. No, great profession, you know, a lot of people do well. My father was a very, very successful prosthodontist. Uh, but, you know, my mom said, well, you know, you like art. Well, why don't you think about architecture? And I literally had no idea what that was. Mm -hmm. right? I thought it was drafting. But she says, you know, it sort of combines science and art together, you know. And, and uh, lo and behold, um, it took me a number of years to get in because I had played basketball or football and also diving team. And I did all these things, these, you know, theatrical performances while I was in junior college and my grades were horrible. And so when I finally did get in, it was one of those weird moments of serendipity. I was going to register for my last year of psychology and the architecture school called and said, you know, someone didn't show up for um, registration. Do you want to come? And I said, well, like, how long do I have to make a decision? And they said, no, no, two o'clock this afternoon. And I'm, I'm about to make a decision, right, for the next four years of my life and maybe my career. So what did I, you know, what does I, what do I do? I, of course, call my girlfriend, now my wife, and say, hey, there's this opportunity. I don't know. I mean, like, it's, I'm just about to go to register for psychology, you know. Uh, she goes, do it. And, and so I did. But the interesting thing is, is I, I learned early. I hated engineering. I mean, I just was, my, my brain just did not think that way. So I learned that I was a visual learner, you know, and the only way to get through engineering, because I almost quit architecture a number of times, because yes, it was the same. And I went, interestingly, to what would be called the Harvard of Canada, which was mm -hmm. McGill University, and you went oh, yeah. to Harvard, real Harvard, Harvard, right? And uh, it was incredibly rigorous, and it was geared towards weeding the chaff out really quickly. I mean, they had 45 you know, students a year. They got down to about 30, and those first two years were just, frankly, painful. But I stuck with it. And, you know, I, I did mostly because I um, hired a grad student, an engineering grad student, who got it that I could understand it if I could draw it. And if I could draw it and I could model it, then I could understand what all those numbers and all those, you know, uh, algorithms actually meant, <laughs> you know, it became a way for me to visualize the process. So by building models and by, and by drawing and it became, you know, it went from nonsense to making some sense. And so I stuck with it, which was, was interesting, but visual learner was clearly the way I was going to make it in this world. The really funny, I think, story that is embedded in this interesting friendship that we have is that uh, at or around the same time, and I think you probably know the story because I told you, I was working uh, as a creative director in an architecture firm and uh, someone else um, emailed me and said, we're doing this show and it's about architecture and so-and-so, um, can you submit a tape? And I thought, oh, that would be actually really great because I've always loved the theater. You know, I've always, I, I first wanted to be either a barber or a, um, an actor when I was a kid. A barber only because I, Charlie Brown's father was a barber and I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and an actor because I just thought that's where I should be, you know. 
So it turns out that I uh, I say, I'm going to Europe right now and I, I, I'm going to this big trade show and uh, I don't have a tape. But here's what I'll do. I'll take, a, I'll take my iPhone or my phone and my, or actually, no, there were these little video cameras back then. Mm-hmm. It was, I guess, 2003, 2004. Is that about right? Somewhere yeah, around right. there. And uh, I went to this trade show and at every one of these exhibits around this trade show floor or when we were out you know, partying, I was pulling out the video camera and telling all my colleagues and friends that I was doing this video sort of documentary of my experience. But lo and behold, I was actually capturing like nine of the mini episodes, right? I send it off thinking, oh, this would be cool. I wonder where it'll go. And of course, I don't get the gig. But then I think you do. <laughs> which is which is hysterical. So it was actually, you know, so watching the show was just part of to see what I missed and where you were going and doing that, which was fun. And I didn't, you know, no grudges. But then the fun thing was, is that years later, you know, being able to hire you when I was at uh, Marriott to do work with us, which was a great opportunity to collaborate and and do some great things together. Uh, I think the uh, the sanctity of your marriage is largely intact as a result of your not getting the gig. So I think in the end, it was it was worth it. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> because you. You said something that I thought was intriguing because this idea of not having the courage, although I'll tell you what, being a stand-up comic, you got to have some modicum of courage because otherwise it, that would just be brutalizing yourself every day, the job for a masochist. But you literally did went to some things. And I, I do remember a couple of episodes where I think you were like, I don't know, on the top of the needle in Shanghai or something in some crazy place. And and it was palpable, and I don't think entirely manufactured for TV audiences, that you were really unsure about some of these places you were in. Yeah, I think actually that Shanghai in particular is an early first or second year I was doing it. And we were it was the it was then the Shanghai World Financial Center, which is now dwarfed right. by the Shanghai Tower, but at the time was the tallest building in, in Asia. And yeah, I was I was terrified. I mean the, the construction site was chaotic. The floor plate was enormous. The winds were very high. It was freezing cold. No one spoke English. There was certainly no OSHA in China, as we know. Yeah, and I was terrified. And yeah, it's kind of interesting just to think about the courage issue because the, uh, how do I put it? I feel like those experiences were so immersive that, and so chaotic that you don't really have the, um, you don't have the space to put on airs. Like there's no, like someone once said to me, like, hey, do you have cue cards? And I was like, have you seen the show? I was like, I'm on the side of a goddamn building. There's no cue card. But but that the idea that like it was you you had to be present and improvise everything because it was a it was downright safety hazard if you weren't being present. And right. I think I came to learn, frankly, like as an as a kind of maturing adult, that if you're present and you're in the space you're in, your emotions are going to come to the surface because that's where you are. You're actually kind of reacting honestly in the moment. And and a lot of times that was fear. And I think that was one of the things that people, I guess, like to see because most of the hosts you saw on TV were either like big dudes, super jacked, kind of explaining things with like absolute certitude, total authority. And that wasn't necessarily my point of view. I mean, frankly, as a, as a, as an architect on a construction site, you're kind of always one step a little bit behind the contractor anyway, because they know how to build things and apparently you don't. And that was that fish out of water you know, right, wrong, left or right became a bit of a narrative I think people did respond to. It is amazing to to talk about that. I love this idea of the honesty of the story, you know, um, and I think that has become one of the things that in in the work that we've that we've collaborated on there. I think there always was this honesty in the story, your ability to pull together this story, the narrative, which becomes so critical. So I, I actually find it uh, I've often said that with respect to architecture, you know, what do we have as tools to, to, 
sell the story. Well, we've got the drawings and that can be very evocative and those are, uh, they can be very captivating and people, but people don't generally understand them unless they're the pretty picture side or the, now the 3d models and the renderings and the fly throughs and all those things that give us a hyper realistic or, you know, some approximation of reality. Uh, but it's the ability to speak, you know, and to pull the narrative of the story together in a way that's compelling and draws people in. And I'm, I'm really curious about your connection to the storytelling that you had to do for the number of years on Build a Bigger and the follow through or the carry through that sort of thread that goes from there into a boardroom where now you're trying to sell, you know, sure. uh, multi-story office towers that are trying to really deal with complex issues, not just brand, but the issue of architecture in an urban environment is rife with complications. Do you find that there's a thread that goes from that world or did you hone skills in the earlier world that you brought through or was it always just there as a natural thing for you? No, I think I, I think there was actually a, a sort of a philosophical point of view that got honed in having to pitch these stories or more to the point, once we would land in a given country, you would maybe know what you were doing, but you would be shooting whatever was happening because a construction site is a wild beast, which is uncontrollable and unplannable, right? It's pure chaos. And, you know, I'll, my schedule would have me in Azerbaijan for these three weeks during this period of time. And we'd book those those shoots six months in advance. So we would hope the things we thought would be happening would be happening, but we never knew that. So what that produced was landing on the ground, seeing what's going to be happening in front of the camera and finding a way to take those, you know, 11 elements and tell the story of a building, A, but B, make that building interesting and compelling beyond just the bricks and mortar of it all. And I think that came together in a kind of a funny rule, which I had since kind of codified to share with other producers of mine as the show grew, which I, um, I'm Jewish, this is okay, I would call it the Passover rule. And, and for, your, for your, um, your Semitic followers, this will be obvious, but on Passover, it's this fabulous holiday, we have this amazing Seder plate, we eat all this food, it's kind of weird, but all the food is quite symbolic. Color, taste, texture, the way you eat it, it helps you elucidate the narrative of the exodus from Egypt, right? So if you eat something bitter, the salt reminds you of tears. If you eat this thing called charoset, which is this actually quite delicious but gross-looking brown material, it looks like mortar when the Jews were actually stacking the blocks of the pyramid, but it tastes sweet to remind you of your emancipation. That's pretty amazing, right? Like diametrically opposed metaphors based upon the taste and appearance of a food. Anyway... The youngest kid, which was me in my household, I was an only child, reads these four questions. And then the eldest person responds. It's a kind of call and response. And through that little dialogue, you learn the Passover story. Anyway, all of that is to say, the first question is, why is this night different from other nights? And then the older person said, today we recline because we're free, et cetera, et cetera. So I would basically ask myself this question in front of every building I was there to say, why is this skyscraper different from other skyscrapers, meaning I, me, or someone who's not an architect knows what a skyscraper is. They've seen the Empire State Building. They've seen the Twin Towers. They've seen the, 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 the Sears Tower. They know what those things look like. And this thing looks categorically different. This skyscraper in this you know, Middle Eastern country or this Asian nation looks different. And I would ask myself to the uninitiated, what's different about it? Well, I don't know. The Empire State Building kind of goes up like a like a wedding cake, but this one is twisting at the top. Okay, well then let's understand why it's twisting. Because in architecture, nothing's arbitrary, or at least it better damn well not be arbitrary. This stuff is really expensive and hard to do. So if you're going to twist some building, 
one imagines, let's hope, there's a really compelling reason to do that. And that would become the gateway for me. The thing that is visually different to the outsider on day one, if you unpack it, chances are the climate of the Middle East or the wind or the seismic or maybe a cultural moment of expression or a pattern, chances are the key to unpacking that building and finding its code to crack it is in that thing that is different from the existing typical typology. And for me, that Passover rule applies to everything we do in the office as well. You know, mm. why is this hotel different from another hotel? What's the base case? You know, I did a lot of improv over the years. And if you take improv classes, they will teach you that you have the, the base reality and then the unusual condition. And the unusual condition is only unusual if you establish the base reality. You know, Frank Gehry as an architect, as crazy as his work is and as wild as it is, you'll notice he oftentimes will build very normative rectilinear buildings as part of his own building. So his building looks crazier next to it. Literally, yeah. he will produce his own context against which to respond. Anyway, so I think for me, why is this different from the existing condition has always been the way that I begin explaining whether I'm in a boardroom today talking about our own work or back in the day on the TV show. I just feel like it, it level sets in a way it meets the audience where they are. It acknowledges that they have a pre-existing point of view. It honors that point of view. It immediately says you're not behind the eight ball because you don't know what I know. In fact, my show, my narrative is based on a point of departure, which begins where you're at. And I think that for me, it's pretty important because how often do people talk about like, oh, yeah, architects, they usually come in. They usually act like the smartest guy in the room. They usually use language that's so fancy. They're, they're you know, like th that seemed insane to me to intimidate and belittle the people who are paying your bills. They barely pay them as it is. You may as well not insult them in the process, right? Generally a good idea. And I agree on all points there. I mean, I think it's funny. I, I wrote a note to myself when you were talking about your school days. And I literally remember like probably uh, design studio year one first day and the chairman of the department getting up and giving us the lecture, you know, kind of sounds like the Pandora lecture, you know, from the that opening scene when they finally land in Pandora and the guy's talking about how long you like likely live here. It was kind of the same thing. But I remember him saying, you know, at a certain point, people just aren't going to understand you. You're going to be talking about things that no one's going to understand. And it set this sort of mindset in place about being you know, different um, and, and having special knowledge. Now, it is true, I think, among uh, of the careers across our cultural experience, architecture and designing the great buildings of the world uh, were pretty lofty careers to have. I mean, they were they were really, you know, in often cases, it was only because the, they were generally the large cathedrals or the huge civic buildings that were, you know, demonstrating some cultural ideologies that these people were putting themselves into. And I think we were educated to believe that that is true. And I think that's part of the challenge that the industry still faces today about being disconnected. But the great thing about, and I'll keep going back to Build a Bigger, but, you know, what's become very clear is that you've become a huge advocate, right, for teaching about architecture. And I don't think you dumb it down. I think what you do is you make architecture, which is extremely complex mm. and yes, very esoteric in a lot of ways um, in the way that architects talk about architecture to themselves. Uh, you've made it accessible. I think there is that sense of accessibility to the people that they can begin to understand the value of architecture, the context of architecture, the stories that architecture brings or tries to talk about uh, in in taking words and feelings and make them three-dimensional as part of a sort of a cultural expression. No, I appreciate that. And I think there is a difference between abstraction and reduction. 
I think mm. you can abstract something and simplify it and, 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 and make it into sort of simple core intrinsic parts and still maintain the nuance of its origin and not make it reductive and dumb it down. I think that's what's critical, though, is that if you're going to do this exercise of abstraction, you got to really know the base content in a way that enables you to abstract it. I think the problem is a lot of those TV shows back in the day were produced by non-architects and it would get reductive. You would simplify the building to how many pounds of steel or cubic yards of concrete or the danger, you know, like all these things that are true. They're part of the process, but it's not the bones of the process. And yeah. no, I'm all about abstraction in service of making the, the broadest, roomiest, most wide open door to invite people in because this is a depressing place to be knowing a bunch of stuff and not being able to share it with someone. Like, sure. why the hell did I learn all this stuff? Why? So I can impress people at a cocktail party doing it's not you know what i mean like it's not like it's not interesting what's interesting to me is making someone get join us in what we're doing and yes do we have a lot of very very intense both kind of philosophical and technical knowledge as architects sure do we have to flash that in every interaction no you don't in doing some of the things that you've done, the Build a Bigger Show was was great. The way that you talk about architecture, the fact that you go back now and you're a lecturer at a number of places, and and you'll go out and equally talk to fourth graders as you will, you know, enormous multinational corporate CEOs. But I think the thing that you do is is that you you talk about it not just in a way that I can understand the process of architecture, but that you bring me to a place of caring mm. why the architecture is there. You know, why you should care about this, why you should care about the fact that the building industry is one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases and why this this thing that I want to talk about in in a few minutes about modular building mm. is important. And I think that's that's a very different way of, of thinking about your mission statement, right? That I want people to care rather than simply understand the process. Yeah, because these buildings are meaningful. They have meaning. They do, whether they are culturally critical to the people who built them or they're economically critical for a city that's transforming or they're or they're, you know, critical literally because they're providing a service to a neighborhood that doesn't have them. Anything that costs a hundred million, fifty million, twenty-five million, a quarter of a billion dollars to build is inherently meaningful because it, it, these are big, expensive things. They're big pieces of infrastructure. So to not kind of frankly celebrate the criticality, the meaning of them, to me is a missed opportunity. So yeah, for sure. I feel like if nothing else, I think the work that we do is important, frankly. And I do think if it gets reduced to exclusively aesthetic premises or exclusively kind of cultural or formal moves, it's not that those aren't great. Those are important too. But you're kind of underselling the, the importance of the work that's being done because these buildings have meaning. I've often talked about this on the show and, and at um, lectures or seminars or you know things that I that I also do about understanding the contextual importance of architecture for uh, this emerging cohort of of new guests. You know that we're now so often catering to. Uh, where and then the story I'll tell is that years ago I could stand outside of of Notre Dame Cathedral with my son and he could look at it and go that's ah, cool neat um, look at all that you know nice uh, detail and Instagrammable moment move on to the next thing but there's no contextual connection for him to the 800 years that it took to build that building mm. or, or you know he has or or the sort of Christian ideologies that are built into the architecture, the representational quality of that architecture in terms of these very big ideas, you know, the meaning of life and the existence of God, re regardless of, you know, your religious orientation. Uh, 
But I, I'm getting the sense more and more, and I've said this before, that you know we're living in a world that moves more from the understanding of monuments to the focus on moments. And I see that as a real challenge for architecture in two ways. One, that it, it means you have a larger challenge ahead of you on getting people to care about what the buildings mean, but also the relevancy of architecture in general in a world that is so fluidly moving um, and so ethereal in many ways that is not what architecture is. You know, architecture is built to last, generally speaking. Uh, and that is, I, I see those as being weird dichotomies that are at play. Yeah, I mean, I think more than ever, the the absurdity of the amount of time it takes us to go from conception to completion in just the economy of images and social media just seems glacial to anyone. I mean, I've got I've got some interns in the office who are in college right now, and I told her that there's a building that we're working on, which isn't yet started construction that we started in 2014. Well, that's not necessarily typical. That's a problem. But nonetheless, I mean, even the projects that go quite well, we do bigger buildings, you know, that'll take, you know, whether it's six months of planning, a year of design, uh, three years of construction, still four plus years to build a building. I and mean, even on Build It Bigger back in the day, I do these mega projects. We're filming for two or three weeks in a five-year cycle of construction. Someone said to me like, oh, isn't it cool to go see this house that you built, to be in this house? And I was like, well, the problem is that house represents a set of ideas I had three years ago. <laughs> right. I don't have those ideas anymore. Those ideas are antiquated to me. I have new ideas. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, don't have a good, I don't have a good answer. Um, I mean, I will say that maybe this is the transition into our, our work in volumetric modular. I do think endeavoring to expedite the process, to speed things up, because it is glacially slow, and I think problematically so, that there is something to be said about, I wouldn't call it rapid prototyping, but I would say, can we take the life cycle from conception to construction and compress it? By using some technology, by using some some automation, by using some sophisticated manufacturing uh, approaches, uh, to me, would make architecture at least a smidge more uh, dexterous and able to respond as opposed to today where you build a building, you finish the building, and it's already ready to start renovating, right? I've said this often uh, in, in, on the podcast again, you know, when I look at the trajectory and you're right about this idea of ground zero, if you start at zero from the ground up and you design a building to the day you're opening the doors, I'm going to say of a hotel, it could be three to five years, like yeah. you just said. Yeah. And, and the industry is set up so that because of the economics and the hotel development, you know, business, the way and, and the times at which people who've invested in these properties actually begin to make money back from their investments is we come back in like seven years and say, okay, now you have to, you know, renovate soft goods, right? Wall covering carpets, those kinds of things, things that can move. And then you're going to come back seven years later and do the case goods and things that, you know, traditionally don't move. And you look at that trajectory, it's 19 years. And I always say, hey, there's nothing in my kid's life that lasts for more than 19 minutes, maybe 19 seconds, you know, on, on a good day. How is it possible we think that this is going to continue to be a way forward in an industry that seems to be inherently behind, you know, and I, I just think it's a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think, you know, hopefully it, it encourages people to not to say the trendy is not really a word I think that we use in architecture often, which is a good thing. I do hope it, it pushes us to, to develop design strategies that have some, we hope, kind of inherent logic to them that can transcend a little bit of time and space. So the thing doesn't feel like it's, you know, old or ridiculous or obsolete, you know, in a couple of years, but yeah, it's a real challenge. I mean, I, I think finding ways to go faster on the design side and finding ways to go faster on the construction side is important because we've got a lot of tech and a lot of smarts and a lot of software, but we still do things in a pretty wildly inefficient way currently. Mm -hmm. Um, and that goes for architects, engineers, builders, and the like. So, um, 
yeah, I think that's that's at least with with I'll put like with my modest sandbox in which I work, I feel like that's an area where we can do some good because I think if we can go faster, move faster, we can be more responsive, we can be more effective, we can also be more strategic um, in, in how we deploy things. To your point about a hotel, it's like it's pretty sad that we built in obsolescence into the design on day one. That's kind of a bummer. Like just finish the building, let's trash it in seven years, let's trash it again seven years later. Like. I get it. It's strategic. It makes sense. You want to keep the thing fresh for guests, but boy, oh boy, does that feel wasteful. Now, do you find this to be consistent? I'm going to say globally, you you know, you do travel a lot. You you have seen the world. Is the paradigm we live in here in the States in terms of uh, how architecture is done here different than it is done elsewhere? And I'll just use an example. I think when the Beijing Olympics happened, you know, we began to see some remarkable buildings, you know, on, on the Olympic campus of things that were from the swimming center to other things, you know, the bird's nest and some, it seems to me there's some pretty extraordinary architecture evolving like everywhere else, but the U S is, is that a correct perception? Um, and I know the architecture now probably pulling their hair out. I'm going to <laughs> something, but, um, but it, it seems that there's a different thing that's happening uh, in other countries. Is that because the regulations are different? Is it, I don't think that it's because there's more creativity anywhere else because architects are working around the world and you know, offices are global now. But is, is that, is that perception uh, consistent with your experience or not? Yeah. And I think I'll probably struggle to, to land on that kind of the causality of it, but I definitely uh, experienced that for sure. I mean, the funny thing is that I started doing build a bigger, I think in 2006 or seven. And then by about 2008 or nine, well, obviously the financial crash happened, but like we stopped doing shows in America straight up. Like there weren't great buildings being built at a regular pace in this country. And we found ourselves, of course, in the Middle East, in Asia, in parts of Africa, in parts of like sort of post-Russia developing countries like like uh, Azerbaijan and areas like Serbia and so forth. Um, some of it was because those places were rebuilding, some were modernizing, right, and so forth. But I think you're right to say that there was a an enthusiasm about the cap capability of the built environment, helping these places to define themselves because they were all seeking for different reasons to get an identity or to frame their identity to the global community. And architecture is a fabulous tool for that. America's, I mean, look, I mean, we're, we're, the, the, the American story, our shtick is pretty clear at this point. We don't need a building to codify our narrative, right? We kind of know it. We're the best. It's great. And so forth. We got to the moon first. Um, so I, I, you know, uh, I, I think there was there's definitely more enthusiasm. But I would also say this, though, like if you go to the UK and you go to Boots, like their, their version of CVS, like it's beautiful and it's an incredibly exquisitely built renovation. And there's still a lot of craft and detail. I think the quantity of A plus buildings in Europe and Asia is really, really high. But I would actually say the bigger preponderance of solid B and B plus buildings is what's so impressive to me relative to America, where we are perfectly satisfied building a ton of D's and F's. We, uh, you know, we, we our, our standards are not that high when it comes to buildings. We will let uh, an inexpensive building look inexpensive. We will allow affordable housing to look like affordable housing. We do not apply the same rigor and passion towards design as we do across all building typologies. Whereas you do see a lot of that. I mean, look, you'll look at like beautiful, council housing, which is the same thing as affordable housing in the UK. And there's like, that's like an SAM brutalist architecture and, and a use of cast in place concrete. Like even, you know, council housing in the UK is done thoughtfully and, and with interest and to create some like unique public spaces as opposed to, I don't know, any of the projects built in the 1970s in America, which have produced, you know, 
terrible urban environments and really unsafe conditions because there was not a lot of thought and interest put into those buildings. So that is what bums me out is that our willingness to allow the C's and the D's and the F's to happen in this country where it seems like there's a sort of effort to avoid that when I travel throughout the world. I hope that what you could do is take a minute and talk about the world of modular construction, the hotel tower that you were involved in, and then your your relationship with the Berkshire Hathaway Group uh, companies that that's helping develop this process for um, the hotel industry or just modular building in general. Yeah, and and let me say this just as a as a as a precursor to this, like while we are quite evangelical about this methodology, which is modular, and I'll talk about that and what that means in a minute. I also want to be like, just in terms of having courage and being a truth teller, like the industry is not the end all be all. It's not going to save the world. It's got tons of problems. And the work that's happening right now to me is not about sort of advocating for it, but actually it's about putting your head down and working to solve some of the intrinsic problems with it so we can make it functional. I think so often we spend a lot of time touting a thing and being so excited about a thing, but like really what we have to do is make the thing work. And that means getting a whole bunch of constituencies in a really complicated ecosystem to work together. And, and that's what we're very focused on. But yeah, at its core, David, you, you said it right. It's like, if you've renovated your bathroom or built a house or built a building, you've got to say to yourself at some point, my God, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like this cannot be the way in which you actually build things. This, this, this does not make, you're telling me because the electrician didn't show up, the plumber won't be here tomorrow because that pipe didn't show up. We're not going to like just idiotic things that extend schedules and complicate projects and compromise quality. You're like, but I thought that was on the drawing. It's always oh, in someone else's drawing. Well, he didn't check that, whatever it is. But my point being is, you know, we've seen, the iPhone transform and new forms come out and just constantly being innovated. And yet all of us in the world of architecture and construction, like are still doing the same shit over and over again. Okay, fine. So modular is a kind of an interesting opportunity from my point of view, selfishly as an architect to stay engaged in the process longer. And I'll just be honest with you, because if you think about the way a building is built, typically we build, the, we design the building, hand over the drawings, and then the GC is, is off to the races. And we hope that he or, he or she falls, falls along with the plans, right? And we check in intermittently to hope it's the case. In modular, in a real funny, selfish way, because the time schedule gets dragged backwards, meaning the fabrication of the modules in the factory has to happen earlier in the process, we, the architect, the design community, the engineers, are more innately involved in that exercise. And because the drawings have to be at such a high level, because you can imagine you can't use old school traditional construction drawings to work in a factory. If you can imagine, you know, building a Porsche on the assembly line, those drawings are pretty darn precise, right? You now need to start drawing a building like you draw a Porsche, which means the architect, the engineer just got a lot more important. So, you know, selfishly, I'm excited for that because I think our role getting back to kind of Frank Lloyd Wright's vision of a master builder actually gets a little more real in this instance, but more to the point, if I'm being a little less selfish and more serious, there's a lot of benefits to thinking about bringing some of the logic of manufacturing to a building, right? There's just tons of things that are more efficient in terms of the way we use assemblies and sub-assemblies. Like we, we prefabricate things all the time. If we just take that to a really, really high level, you can start to very, very seriously bring some efficiency. So meaning while you're digging a hole in the ground, making the foundations of the building, wouldn't it be great not to wait to build the rest of the building? Like imagine you've got two construction sites happening simultaneously on site in New York, New Jersey, wherever, Shanghai, Taipei, you're digging a hole, making a basement, and simultaneously, you're building the hotel rooms that'll sit on top of that thing, you know, come six months later. So there's some amazing efficiencies. Okay, cool. Um, 
But then what gets really exciting is that there's a lot of smart people who are not me who've already done some really smart work and thinking about how factories are organized and the way labor is organized. Why can't we borrow and learn from some of those from some of those industries? You know, the, the, the first comment we usually get is like, oh, this is anti-labor. You're going to outsource this thing and you're going to deliver this perfectly completed little module totally done to site and plop it on the building and you're going to disintermediate the labor. But what if we thought about it differently? What if we said, how do we enable the local labor by bringing them into a factory environment where their schedules and their shifts can be scheduled and organized, where they're not so dependent on the electrician being done and he's not being done, they lose a day's, days of work. So there's actually a way to think about this from the point of view of labor and to say, how do we enable labor? Another point of view is to say, well, how do we think about really smart things that people like Amazon are doing right now, where you've got this highly dexterous, highly agile, disaggregated supply chain, meaning instead of having like one factory in one city or one factory in another city, what if you start to think about kind of nimble manufacturing where we might have local manufacturing facilities, we would call them pop-up plants that can be near or adjacent to a construction site where major amounts of assembly work can happen and then kind of um, on-time delivery to the site. My point being, these aren't ideas that come out of the architecture engineering world. They come out of the, you know, the Amazon world. They come out of the manufacturing world, but they're doing really impressive things. We can learn a lot from them and our industry can in fact adapt to them. But my point is, I think one of the issues has been, and, I, and a colleague of mine uses this analogy, which I think is a good one, you know, Uber, when they made their wonderful uh, ride hailing technology, had a choice. Day one, they could have said, hey, yellow taxi cabs, we've got this great app to help you guys be much better at being taxi drivers. Or we can try and annihilate your industry and help a bunch of Toyota Avalons and Camrys come and compete with you guys, right? And they chose the latter, right? Well, what if we don't choose that, the Uber strategy? Like, what if we think about taking all the players, existing architects, engineers, builders, GCs, fabricators, manufacturers, and enable them with this technology of volumetric modular and, and a dexterous supply chain strategy? And you can make, and we believe anyway, I believe, you can actually make modular mainstream and make it work, not by necessarily creating institutions, vertically integrated silver bullet companies that are going to do everything but kind of like mild augmentations to our current system that I think can help all the various players um, do their job a bit better. So that's, sorry, that was maybe a bit too lofty, but, but yeah, we're very, we're very focused. And so, yeah, I, I guess David, just to answer your earlier question, we had been building buildings the regular way, like everyone else saying, man, this is inefficient. And we had a tower in New York. It was a Marriott tower. And it just was, it, it, it seemed to me to be a good candidate to do, to endeavor to try modular on. It had a, a plan that was highly efficient. We felt we could really optimize for it. And we went for it. And we, and we, you know, from a fabrication standpoint, it worked. It was an incredible experience. But at the same time, it really taught me that me as an architect doing one project at a time, you know, maybe two or three of these buildings, what have you, I don't have the will or the might or the influence or really the leverage to move the needle. However, finding the right capitalized partner that has the conviction to really try and work with us on this, we may be able to make some change. And so we did, we did uh, create a partnership with a company called MyTech, which is a, a Berkshire mm -hmm. Hathaway company that makes a whole bunch of amazing offsite components, whether it's roof trusses or curtain walls or what have you. And we're working with them to try and to try and kind of crack this code a little bit and to try and find a way to enable the industry in a really, really broad way to look at offsite manufacturing in a way that is not scary, 
that doesn't make a bunch of trailer homes, that doesn't put people out of business, that doesn't try and disintermediate, but actually enables folks. So it seems like part of the value of the process is exactly that, streamlining or, or hoping to remove some of the inefficiency in the process. And architects are traditionally really good at um, getting down the line and changing their mind about something or clients too, right? Asking for, for something sure. to be introduced that wasn't ever there in the beginning. And that's very difficult to do, Becomes, but becomes even more difficult to do in your world, right? The modular world where interrupting the production line is not something that's going to happen. You're absolutely right. And and certainly to work in a factory setting, you've got to commit to decisions earlier and do so with a lot of clarity and a lot of commitment. Because if you if you make a change down the road, you're in trouble. It's like when you buy your whatever, like BMW on the configurator on the website, and you pick the color and the style and the engine and the leather, this, when you hit buy, like, there's no, there's no follow up. There's no like, I changed my mind, right? You're buying another BMW if you're going to change your mind, right? Same thing in this, you've got to commit to these decisions early. And that's, you know, maybe that's hard for a lot of us who want to protect our flexibility for as long as possible. So, okay, you got to commit early. But I do want to say this, that like the, the, the notion that like, oh, there are these constraints, it kills creativity. You got to work within these dimensions. It's like, you have to work with dimensions all the time. Like yeah. you have to work with gravity all the time. Like steel can only go so long before it breaks. Like concrete doesn't work in tension. Like we have these constraints as designers and we work with these constraints and yes in the world of modular there are some new constraints it is true that a car going down a highway a truck doesn't want to have a module wider than 15 feet otherwise it requires a special police escort that's expensive so yes try and work within a 15 foot increment if that limitation disenables your creativity well then maybe you should be in a different profession my, my, my point being is like, you can produce anything and everything. Your heart's content in terms of creative expression. These are slightly new limitations, but that's fine. Like, I kind of feel like get over it. Like, you can, you can still make this thing work. And if there's a modular building that's built that looks like a modular kind of bunch of crappy stacked boxes, you need a crappy architect. It wasn't the system, right? There's enough bad buildings built with bricks and concrete and steel too. And they had a bad architect that didn't like invest in the process. So I think that there are some ways in which our practice has to augment to work with this manufacturing mentality. You got to move a little faster. You got to commit to certain things earlier. You have to kind of do certain things out of order, but like, okay, well, what if your right. building can maybe get built faster and all that extra time you saved there, that, that owner, those monies were going to go to the bank to service the debt. Well, maybe those dollars will go towards your architecture. Redeploy right. the funds instead of having it go into the bank, go to your facade, <laughs> you know? Right. I think Moshe Safdie, uh, 1967, yeah. uh, Habitat at Expo in Montreal. Sure. I mean, I grew up um, knowing that building well. I mean, that was that yeah. was one of the first housing projects done in a modular fashion. That was a thesis project for him, as the story is told. And and he ran to the city of Montreal and said, hey, I got a housing project idea for you and your World's Fair. You should probably build this. Well, it turned out to be pretty amazing and not boring. I mean, it's in the, yeah. you know, we look at Habitat. It's an extraordinary building, no matter how you look at it. Um, and probably didn't leak half as much as Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings leaked, um, for sure. What is the uh, future? You know, we always talk about next level and and what's now and what's next. What are you yeah. looking at in terms of the world of modular, or is it? What's really cool, like you know, people are very excited. I, I see on Instagram all the time, like three D printed houses and all this fun technology. And, and like, I hope that's great. And and in, I hope in a few years this becomes a little more mainstream. The 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 technologies and the methodologies of modular that we're deploying today are available today. 
there is very little in the way of inventions required to make this thing functional. Like, yes, we're developing some cool IP with some cool structural cages and connections and facade details and what have you, but this is like fine grain stuff I'm describing. The base logic of modular exists today and it functions. What doesn't function is the ecosystem, right? The relationship between the fabricator, the contractor, the municipal authority, the lender, the insurance company. There's a lot of complexity there. Like the contracts we use from the AIA have not been augmented to work for modular, blah, 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 blah. That's actually good news. The, the methodology functions, the logistics and the infrastructure need some work. That's fixable. That comes through conversations and policy and communication and, and sort of growing an industry. But the good news is we don't have to invent cold fusion for this future to be available to us today. So when you ask me what the future is, the future is now. This thing works today. We just need to get, I would say, some kind of potholes on the organizational side worked out. We got to get contractors open to working with fabricators. We've got to get our contractual logic squared away. We've got to get municipal authorities comfortable. We've got to get UL to get more tested assemblies so architects can more easily specify this. We need groups like ASTM, the testing agencies that determine what gets a two-hour fire rating to embrace these modular solutions so that you're not asking every owner and every architect to be a goddamn innovator because it's not their job. Not everyone has to be a pioneer. Some people want to be a practitioner and just do a good job and they should have that flexibility. So what we need to do in my, my belief is just to get some of these policy-based, organizational-based uh, um, issues um, ironed out. And I, we're, we're close to doing it and we're working our asses off to make that happen. And I think the cool thing is like the future is now, you're gonna see volumetric modular buildings built increasingly all the time. And yes, you will have seen the internet and seen companies like Katera go out of business. You will have seen big modular companies fail and go under. And I will argue that that is actually a validation of what I'd said earlier, which is that it's not about coming in with a gigantic big bat and telling the industry how to change and do things differently. It's actually about working from inside, acknowledging there's a lot of great stuff that we do. There's some stuff that we can do better. And let's work together to make some of these incremental improvements. Because I, I don't want to sound like Joe Biden here, but I do believe that there is some modest, progressive growth that we can make, which will have an enormous global impact when the construction industry is as big as it is. A small change for us in how we build buildings is a paradigm shift for this planet, right? And so rather than, and I'm not saying 3D printing a house is a bad thing. Please, 3D print all the houses you want. God bless. But I don't think that's going to solve the affordable housing crisis in Q2 of next year. And that's what I'm interested in. I want to make a difference this year and next year to impact the way affordable housing is built in this country. And I don't think it's going to come out of a printer. So let's take a second to talk about some of the fun we had, um, which was fun. It was fun because I think we we sought to recreate a guest room for a loft and a public space for a loft. Um, Marriott had just acquired Starwood. And with that acquisition came um, a number of brands, which took Marriott, I think, from 19 to 30 brands or something like that. And uh, we were on the search for, you know, how to make this room new and some new thinking to apply to it. So we reached out to Danny. And um, why don't why don't we, you tell me a little bit about what your recollection of the experience was? And we'll go sure. through yeah, and I think I think the design challenge fits right into what we've been talking about, which was like, you know, Marriott bought all these brands from Starwood, Aloft being one of them. And, you know, this is a company that was formerly tuned to compete with Marriott, right, Starwood. And now it is no longer competitor. It is part of the family. So therefore, this one brand will take it called Aloft. While it was initially designed to compete with Marriott, now it has to be, A, not compete, but B, it's got to get current, right? Because it was a little bit little bit older and, and maybe hadn't been rocking and rolling the way they wanted it to. So what was really amazing was that, you know, in us being asked to join 
the team to think about how to reframe this thing. It was fundamentally a narrative exercise to say, what is the story of this thing? Because the previous story was to compete and this new story had to be to collaborate. Um, I also think it was a very fun challenge for us because the, the notion of a loft is a kind of inherently kind of urban experience. You know, I have my office here in Soho is a converted loft in which I sit right now. There's loft buildings behind me. And these these were a typology of hotel that was oftentimes sitting adjacent to an airport in a uh, Midwestern state, not a particularly lofty environment. And the uh, and the design, not that there was anything necessarily wrong with it, but it it didn't, from my point of view anyway, it didn't seem to speak to its to its roots, to its origins. And so, you know, we were asked to kind of get involved and to start to think about how to transform uh, uh, the brand. And I think we were also very sensitive to the fact that like, you know, a bunch of middle-aged dudes coming up with a concept that's going to be hip to a bunch of young travelers is also like a bit of a fool's errand as well. And so like trying to hip this thing up and make it like hip to tomorrow is, is a challenge, you know, it's, it's so, so we took an approach there, which I think, I think, I don't know, I think was successful. I think that it has since proven to be quite successful. They've built a number of these things off our prototype, but that the idea was that it would be about innovation of its time. And that time didn't necessarily have to be today. In other words, there were moments of design innovation, like a loft was an innovative thing to co-op an existing space and essentially fill it with great, different, interesting, non-structural element. That's what a loft was, a big, rough, family industrial space that was adaptively reused. And inside of it, you would put things in like partitions. You'd put objects in that were kind of large, movable objects that would transform the space, whether it was things hung from a ceiling i.e. horizontal surfaces, or things put up vertically, i.e. vertical surfaces. And there was a series of these temporary interventions you would transform aloft. So let's do that. But the things that you'll use to transform it with, let's make them significant moments in innovation of various decades. In other words, it can be moments from the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. And, and it runs the risk of getting a little kitschy. And that was always the, the challenge we had to, to walk that line with. But I really enjoyed the idea of saying, I'm not cool enough to endeavor to design this as a cool hunter would for the Instagram generation or the Snap generation or whatever they're going to be using in three years from now when this building is built. So I'm going to, I'm going to fold my cards on day one and say, I can't do that. So uh, given that concession, um, let's, let's find ways to plant a series of Easter eggs that would be compelling and to discover those things that would unpack a little bit of a design context and a little bit of design history. So, you know, that meant we had references to the Bauhaus. It meant references we had to, to uh, um, garage bands, references to, uh, um, gosh, now I'm forgetting some of them. Poultry and other animals that were somehow embedded into the wall covering that we used, you know, that it was like a seek and find, like, like you go to the bathroom and then there's this wall covering and somehow within this pattern, all of a sudden you're discovering these things that you wouldn't have ever expected to be there. And I love the idea that you brought up the Easter egg because literally first note out of your mouth, I wrote down Easter egg. I want to ask you about Easter eggs. Um, but I, let me use that then Please. as saying, what is the... I love this idea of the Easter egg. Um, I've seen you talk uh, and you, your session was all about these discovery moments and the Easter egg. Um, unpack that a little bit for me in the context of a loft. Sure. I mean, the idea being that, you know, whether, and this is not just for hotels, it's for all buildings, is that like, 
I'll put it this way. Christopher Nolan is my hero, the director of, you know, The Dark Knight, Interstellar, Tenant, uh, uh, The Prestige. He's like the greatest thing ever. I love him. And and he says this quite wonderful thing, which is that he is a he is a group of a generation of filmmakers that acknowledge that their films will be seen multiple times. Even if they don't like them, people rewatch them, whether it be HBO replaying them or streaming in the multiple platforms. So if he acknowledges that his buildings will be seen multiple times, he believes it's incumbent upon him to make the film evolve through multiple viewings, that there are multiple layers that in fact are, are not are, are too dense to be ingested in a single viewing. And you need to, if you're trying to pay attention to the narrative, that's round one. And if you already know how the film ends, round two, you can focus on the structure. And once you get the structure, round three, you can focus on the cinematography or what have you. That that his films plant a series of Easter eggs that only you know Stephen Hawkins will catch the first time through. We humans need multiple viewings. But that is baked into the logic because he believes that's how we consume cinema. Why is architecture any different? Like you don't go to a building one time and it's not made of terry cloth. It's going to be there for a while. So I believe, I think a lot of us believe that there are multiple layers of meaning that, by the way, we're not implanting that meaning. It's baked into the design of a building. A building is a very complex thing that has multiple systems addressing multiple problems, right? And therefore, there's lots of rich layers inside of it. My hope is that those layers, or in this case, we'll call them Easter eggs, can be made available to the visitors through multiple visits or multiple engagements with the building. And so that can happen at a major scale where you understand a building at an urban context, like on a skyline, but then you get close to it and it's totally different. You know, Tower One at Ground Zero is a great example. Seen from afar, it has the exact silhouette of the original Twin Tower, that perfect rectangle. But because of the way they carve the corners, when you're at the memorial pools looking up at the building, the geometry transforms and you see the Washington Monument. It's wild. Literally, it's wild. The building transforms before your eyes. You get two totally different readings from two different locations. Those layers unpack themselves. Those Easter eggs become available. You know, in a loft, we said, let's do the same thing. Let's try and pack in as many Easter eggs as possible. So whether it's the guest on day one who has a different visit on day two, or maybe it's he comes back to a different loft in a different city a year later, and there's layers that come out. So in this case, you know, loft, a loft is all about music. And so there's a beautiful chandelier that sits over the, the kind of collaborative work environment in the public space. And, you know, people do a lot of speak typing. And so if you look down and do your, your speak typing in your Siri phone and iPhone, when you say live at a loft, which is the name of the concert series, literally, if you look at that in your phone, You'll look up and see that's the exact geometry of the of the chandelier that you're probably looking at a concert happening in real time right before your eyes. As you referenced earlier, there's a, a pattern of wall covering that is meant to show the kind of Highway 66, these kind of traditional gas stations on the road in the 60s like Kerouac and so forth. But as you stare at these things while you're probably standing and peeing, uh, looking one day, you'll probably notice that there actually is, you know, a giraffe sitting quietly in the back of one of the multiple gas stations on the wall. Why is it there? We don't actually know. But the point is, there's layers of this thing that become available to you through multiple viewings or kind of intense meditation, or maybe it just kind of pops up before your eyes. But I think the idea is that like, we always talk about surprise and delight in architecture. It's supposed to be delightful and surprising, but I think what's really cool. And again, I'll go back to Chris Nolan. I think it is okay to say that this thing will get better over time. These layers will reveal themselves to you as you understand the wayfinding. Okay. I got it. You're not stressed about where you're going. All of a sudden, your, your, your analytic precepts become open to another layer of meaning. 
and you'll start to see some color and texture and lighting. And once you get the color, texture, and lighting, then your presets will become open to maybe it's like physical texture, some tactile surfaces, what have you. But that like we as architects and designers, I don't know, if you're not baking these layers into it, you're kind of leaving money on the table because people want it and they're going to be in sure. buildings for protracted periods of time. And uh, so, yeah, I think a loft in my mind was a treasure hunt of a series of Easter eggs that hopefully make the place, you know, it's not meant to be like a, a, a sort of like a reveal at the end of the sixth sense or anything like that, but it's more like multiple viewings produce a progressive iterative richness that make it valuable to come back. And yeah, that was, that was, I think one of the, that was one of the biggest ideas I think that we tried to put forward in that project. But also, I think if you get the idea that at a base level, we are pattern, or at least our brains are pattern recognizing yeah. machines, and, and actually the interruptions within these extremely complex patterns are really what our brain gets jazzed about, right? Because it discovers the anomaly. And then in that system, the dopamine system kicks in, there's a learning opportunity. But it, it does speak to the idea of experiences that offer up discovery, mm. right? So that is not always the same. And I think that's as the industry goes forward, you know, the, the whole idea of bespoke properties and things that are, you know, custom made or somehow involve um, this, that sense of unique quality are increasingly go going to be what people want for starters. Um, I, you also had a really interesting innovation uh, in the entrance way and, and thinking oh, about right. the, the ground floor with the selfie soffit, you know, was the thing that we, we thought about. I don't know if it ever evolved uh, beyond concept, but it seemed to be also extremely timely to speak to this fluid nature of digital experience and what was happening and sort of the idea that the building could, uh, I call it like the cognitive handshake, right? I do something in the context of this architectural space that gets reflected in something that is transposing or transforming or transmogrifying the environment. That's an incredibly empower, empowering thing. Um, why don't you just, if you can, touch on that idea about the selfie soffit, which I thought was a brilliant idea as well. Yeah. Yeah. This is just the, the idea that, you know, entering into a, into a hotel lobby and plopping yourself and waiting to be, um, you know, addressed by the, the check-in desk can be, you know, a boring experience. And so we had this, this sort of, uh, this chandelier, if you will, but really it was a hung soffit that was a faceted series of screens that would basically project back to you images of yourself entering the space. And then the seating element that sat below this faceted piece of geometry was an actual physical projection of the thing above your head. So the furniture you were sitting in was a geometric expression of the screen over your head. And the screen over your head was playing an image of yourself from a moment earlier. And there you sat sort of betwixt these two things. And yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a play to obviously bring social media and the idea that you want to document yourself in the space and this would produce a really beautiful Instagrammable moment for you to do that. But it also meant to say that like you get to actually curate the space, like you were playing a role in the in the actual interior design. In this case, the, the design of the soffit. So yeah, it was a it was a it was a wild little piece and and uh, yeah, I think it, it I think it did ultimately get VE'd out of the process, unfortunately. But I think the concept was strong. Um, but yeah, I think that was that was just one of the many layers that the you know, you don't want them to be parlor tricks because that's, you know, at its worst, I think architecture can be turned, can transform into that. You don't want, it wants to be meaningful and wants to be memorable. And ideally it wants to be spatial, right? It wants to not just be a series of screens blasting chaos at your face, but actually like there's an internal analog formal material way in which you interact with it. Like, you know, the best, my favorite paintings are the abstract expressionists because they got really into what painting's all about flatness and opticality, right? Do the thing that's good about the thing you're working in. Architecture is spatial, it's three-dimensional, it's volumetric. Lean into that stuff because that's our tool. Like, so I, I, I get a little concerned when we get too excited about screens, you know?
because that feels a little bit like cheating to me. So, but I do, I do love it when we can start to interact technology with things that are spatial and formal and geometric. Danny Forster, thank you. Great conversation. And I so hope we can get you back again. David, thank you. It is so fun to see you. Hopefully I can see you not on a screen at some point. <laughs> I know. Screens have been a savior over the past year, but I look forward to seeing you face-to-face -face in New York. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.